Hi, I'm Yuval Brisker, and this is a jolt of Uvelocity. Edition 2022. Hi, I'm Yuval Brisker, and this is a new episode of A Jolt of Uvelocity. And I'm here with my buzzy producer, Jay Sailing, who has got something lined up for us today. What are we talking about today, Jay? Hey, Yuval, thanks for the intro. You're welcome. Today, the topic is really the journey. And the journey, it's a, it's a very broad topic, but I think it stems from a recent pilgrimage that you did over in Japan. There's so many cool parts of it that I really want to touch on, but I think to give the audience some context, it would be good to let them know what led to this pilgrimage and what life events kind of recently happened for you that, that made this a very special journey. Yeah. So first thing, we've kind of been on a hiatus, right? And the reason is that because I, I took a bit of a leave of absence. On October 21st, um, my mother passed and into the beyond, to the next dimension. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very moving and, you know, difficult and big event in my life. Uh, of course, as it is in every man and woman's life when their mother passes, that time comes. And, you know, it's kind of a reckoning. And I was there with her over the last two weeks as she was kind of, you know, taking leave, literally. And uh, there in her last breaths, and um, and it was uh, very moving and very powerful, emotional, but necessary, and very I don't know, very inspiring, and I don't know, somehow comforting. But of course, you know, being that I'm Jewish, there's a whole process of mourning, and one of the things that we do is called shiva. And that means that we sit for seven days pretty much at home after the funeral and accept condolence visits from the community, from your friends, from people around who live around, and from, you know, just generally everyone you pretty much know. <laughs> and and it's a very uh, powerful week because, you know, you get to not do anything. You're not working. You're not, you know, cooking. You're not food. Everybody brings food. And so you're kind of living off the community and the community's just taking care of you in your first week of mourning. And it's a very powerful thing that people from all different portions of your life or and even people, you know, who's in my mother's life, of course, come to spend time with you while you're going through a process of just, you know, digesting for the first time that your loved one is not there. And... Um, during that time, I also, I was planning to go to Japan on a business trip in the beginning of November. That was planned. And I thought to myself, you know, after this week was over, that I couldn't just go back to life, you know, business as usual. And I really needed to take a more meaningful break and kind of reflect on the, on the moment, this moment in my life, the loss, the uh, sort of the realization of a lot of the mortality things kind of i want to say confronting mortality but i wasn't it wasn't confrontational but really you know having that just being you know taking in the moment not you know just rushing back to 
to work. Yeah. And, you know, kind of repressing it or putting it aside, but really kind of letting it sink in, absorbing the change, digesting it, making it, you know, more assimilating it into my mind and body and heart. So I decided to take this trip to Japan that I was going to go to anyway, beginning of November, and extend it and be there for basically all the month of November. Then I had a bunch of people join me along the way, so I wasn't alone. I'll talk about that in a minute, but why Japan? Because first thing, I love Japan. <laughs> I love Japan. My love for Japan is growing by the second. <laughs> it is now my favorite place in the world. Wow. Yeah, it's big. And there's almost nothing I don't like about it. And there's a thing or two, you know, that kind of, you know, if you're in a hurry or if you're like, want to get <laughs> stuff done outside the rules, outside the, you know, like pre-set process to get something done, then it's not a good place for you. <laughs> you know, if you want to do something really fast or kind of do workarounds or don't play by the rules, it's not a great place for you. <laughs> But if you put that aside and you're not there for that, then it's the best. There's nothing that can match it. Nothing. Wow. Yeah, it's big. So basically, I decided I want to be there because first thing, it's a place of peace for me. And secondly, it's far away from everything that, that my, my daily life is part of, meaning it lives on sort of only on an antipodal time, meaning when they're awake, we're asleep here. And when we're asleep, they're awake. And I like the idea that, you know, I wouldn't have the urge to connect because there's nobody to connect to <laughs> in, <laughs> in real time. To. Right? <laughs> yep. So I, I like that, you know, the ability to disconnect to some degree. And secondly, you know, there was just many the spiritual dimensions of Japan. I think it's a very spiritual place and it's a place of a lot of meaning. And I can talk a little bit about what that is. And it's a place that's gone through huge transformation in the last hundred years. And it represents for me a certain, you know, serenity that I find there in the huge cities, even, you know, in the countryside. And the beauty of Japan is really that there's a huge respect for every single person. And for somehow the public sphere is always incredibly respectful of like humanity, the others, other people around you. It's refreshing. Yeah. Oh, no, it's very different than where we come <laughs> from. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not individuality that they respect, because I don't think they really respect individuality. I think what they respect is like space and the ability for people not to be bothered in a way. Because there's no sense of, you know, individuality is more complicated there, I think. I, I'm not that deep in it, but, but it seems to me that way. But, you know, even in the most crowded places in Japan, it's silent in the street. People don't shout or scream or push or anything like that and there's no crime and it's a general place of peace pacifist it's become a pacifist nation since world war ii and the food's really good <laughs> <laughs> and just generally i mean there's it's a place of deep respect and i wanted that and it's got an enormously long history it's super well documented and also very still apparent in the day-to-day -day. i mean they're can go to temples that were built there in you know 1100 and they're just simple wooden things and they're still incredible in incredible shape so i decided that's all those things you know i really needed that post you know after my mom passed just to have time to kind of 
contemplate, to think about, you know, life and life without my mother and so on and so forth, you know, and, and going forward, what does that mean? And so I went to Japan to, for business for a week. And then from there, I went on this pilgrimage. I decided to go with friends. Friends decided to come with me to Japan from Israel. And my two dear friends from Jerusalem were accompanying me to something that we were going to do to walk. And then my friend found this trail, which is uh, called the Kumano Kodo, which basically is a pilgrimage trail. It's an imperial pilgrimage trail that basically is the most popular route for pilgrims in Western Japan. And it dates back to the 10th century. This route has been used like by the imperial family throughout all the centuries on a pilgrimage when they were still in Kyoto. And so it's this incredibly rich, very storied mountain trail that basically is a road almost. It's not a paved road, but it's kind of it's a wide trail. It goes about 80 kilometers through the mountains east of Osaka in a place called the Kii Peninsula and the Kumanakoto. It's basically an incredible experience to walk the path, the Buddhist, and you know I'm a Buddhist, so it really is doubly meaningful for me to walk this imperial pilgrimage. And the reason this pilgrimage exists is it's a pilgrimage for healing and salvation. And boy, did that fit where I was, you know, I mean, in my existence. Post my mother's, you know, passing, I was really looking for some healing and salvation. And nothing could have been better than that, you know, going there. Number one, I had decided I was going to go to Japan no matter what and kind of disconnect. But then this trail came along. Oh, so you didn't actually know, like, this specific trail you wanted to go on? No. Oh, okay. I thought this was more premeditated than it is. That's really cool that you stumbled upon this. I mean, it's such an amazing thing. Yeah, the premeditation was to do something, right? I mean, to go somewhere rural yeah. and to do kind of a ritual walk, in a way. But we stumbled on this trail literally, like, a, a week or two before we came to Japan. And then, of course, it was a journey because, I mean, it was basically walked for five days, but the whole journey was like seven. It took us a day to come and go. We took a break of one day in the middle in, in one of these hot spring towns in the middle of the mountains called Yunomine. Onsen is what's the name for um, a Japanese hot spring bath. And as you probably know, Japan is one big volcano. <laughs> so there are like tens of thousands of hot springs, water gushing out of the earth, hot, 40 degrees Celsius. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. Pretty hot. Wow. It's as hot as you can kind of bear for more than, you know, a few minutes. It's higher than the body temperature. So we did that. And so we walked for three days then took a break for a day, then walked for another two days. So it was a total of six days. And 80 kilometers crossing three pretty big mountain passes, ascending around 3,500, 3,600 feet, which is just about a 1,000 meters. So pretty arduous. A lot of uphills, a lot of downhills. 
and mostly forests, you know, like these very primordial forests, you know, that been there for thousands and thousands of years. And, and along the way, lots of little temples and, and shrines and, and then two big temples. Very, very amazing. And a very kind of remote feeling, right? You didn't really come across too many other people throughout the experience than the people that you were with. Yeah, no, we were basically just the three of us. For something with so much history, you'd imagine that there's more people. Like when you see people summiting Everest, there's lines and lines of people. But it's nice that this was a very kind of like solitary experience. Yeah, it was very inwardly, outwardly kind of thing. And first thing, it wasn't exactly middle of the summer. We were already, it was mid-November. The trees were crazy. All the Japanese maple was just changing colors. And I mean, it was insane. The colors you see there are just beyond belief. I just want to stop you for one second and let the audience know that I will come up with a nice photo collage because I know you've all, you have a ton of photos from this yeah. and yeah. you can pick the best and then, and then we'll publish that on, on a Jolt yeah. of E-Velocity's website. But yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, 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 we can definitely put some photos up because it's a photographer's, you know, heaven. Yeah. It's so dramatic and, you know, the landscape is so, the trees are so thin, the density is high, and the landscape is pretty rugged, but covered still with vegetation. So there's not a lot of people there. I mean, it was mid-November, so... You know, it was already on the chilly side. It wasn't cold, but it was, you know, it got chilly at some points. And we ran into one or two people a day. That was it. Wow. The rest of the time we were in this forest and just walking in this incredible, beautiful sun, shade, shadow, you know, drifting colors and light. Forest. A lot of really interesting moments from a point of view of looking out into the landscape and then being you know going between inside and outside and and what's exposed and what's in, and it's very planned you know like everything in japan you can kind of sense even though it's very wild you are in deep rural you know countryside in mountainous countryside but you know there's also kind of a you know, there's an intention in the way the thing kind of goes from town to town. And at night you stay in towns prearranged. You can prearrange it. You can stay in people's homes. And they cook you food, you know, traditional Japanese food. Oh, wow. You sleep on the futon, on the floor, on the tatami. I mean, it really, you really get the full experience, including like I got a backache. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't. It was rough. Rough. I'm a side sleeper. I think for back, you know, for back sleepers, you know, it was fine to get on. My my friend is a back sleeper, and uh, one of my two friends who were with me. I'm a side sleeper. For a side sleeper, those hard Japanese futons on the hard tatami floor, it was rough on my my lower back. But it went away every morning after I got up after I stretched. But yeah, but traditional Japanese breakfast, traditional Japanese dinners, you know, little Japanese snacks, everything's, you know, super Japanese, which is great because you don't feel like you're somewhere else. And there's not really an influx into those areas of, let's call it American food culture. So very meaningful. And every day we went from, it was very different. Every day was different. First day, it was very steep, but short. And then we reached this beautiful spot where you could kind of have a big vista of the mountains. 
And we had a house to ourselves, like a job, a traditional Japanese house with screen, with sort of the whole thing was full of like moving screen walls and and everything. Of course, we slept on the floor and the food was very traditional. And we were on our own because it was really kind of almost like an Airbnb, but it wasn't. And then the second night we had hosts and the third night we stayed in this hot springs town. And these hot springs, I think there's somewhere, I can't remember whether the number is 27,000 or 17,000, but there's a ton of them all over Japan. Oh, wow. And, you know, people use them. And Japanese culture is incredibly clean, hygienic. Incredibly. I mean, to the nth degree, right? There's no such thing as no hygiene. It doesn't exist. First thing, they don't touch each other because they don't, you know, shake hands. Mm. They've been wearing masks since everywhere. And since the first time I was there, I saw it and I thought, what are they wearing masks for? Well, if you're sick in Japan, or even if you have a sniffle, you put on a mask to protect others. And I saw this in 2015, the first time I went there. And I was like, ooh, that's interesting. Uh, of course, mm-hmm. now everybody still wears a mask, even in the street, which is kind of ridiculous. But, <laughs> but these onsen, so Japan has always been a bathed society because of these hot spring waters. They basically, you know, have got something that no one else and no, you know, nation as a whole had, which is natural running hot water. And so they had no problem, you know, bathing. Whereas anywhere else in the world, of course, that was non, almost non-existent. And if it was, it was in one spot, but not over a whole nation. Yeah. Here, every little town has public bathing, you know, facility and people go to these public baths. And in, especially in these onsen towns where there's actually a real gush of hot spring water, then the public bath is how, you know, people both clean themselves, but at the end also socialized. And they still do, meaning they go to these public baths, they, they first you wash yourself down, scrub yourself down with, you know, with soap before you get into the bath. And you're completely mm. naked, of course, and... And you walk into the bath with all these other naked people and you just sit in the bath and you talk and people talk and socialize. They don't drink in there. There's no phones, of course, but there's rich, hot mineral water and you can go from hot to warm to, you know, cold. And I did it, of course, in that in this town, but I also did it afterwards in, in Kyoto, very in a public bath. You pay 200 yen, which is less than $2. and you go in and you can just be there it's beautiful and the water is natural and you know you meet people (laughs) you know (laughs) in in your birthday clothes which is kind of interesting too because here there's a some weird you know it's like the, the relationship with death is strange here the relationship with the body and nakedness is also strange here whereas there on one hand they're incredibly close and tight but then they go into these public baths and, you know, everybody just hangs around with their birthday clothes. And so, you know, it stops being a thing. They're just hanging out and getting this amazing hot water. And it's very soothing and very healing. So, so we did this for five days. And, you know, we walked from one village to the next, from the, you know, and then walked to this onsen. And every day, like I said, was different. One day was incredibly, you know, steep, and the next day was not steep. It was just, you know, kind of pretty flat, up a little, you know, gentle ups and downs with a lot of views of the internal forest, and the forest was changing all the time. 
Then there was another day that was, you know, very hilly up and down, but with a lot of openings and, you know, vistas. And then there was a day where we were in the forest completely and it was all uphill (laughs) from start to finish. Tough day. And the last night that we were there, we stayed with a, what's called a Yamabushi, which is a forest spiritual man. And this was not planned. It ended up being the person who we were staying with in this town called, I don't remember what the name of the town was, but I think it was called Koguchi. And he was a true, you know, part of this few hundred people who were spiritual guides in these forests of Japan. Oh, wow. And they knew the forest. I definitely planned to go back to him because he and his wife were living there, beautiful people, farmers, farming rice. So we ate their rice. First time I've ever eaten rice that somebody actually grew. And they, you know, told us about the forest, about this, these kind of, it's almost like a little spiritual tribe of Yamabushi. And we slept out almost outside and, and next to this rushing river. It was freezing. And of course, they always have the bath ready for you when you get to these places. And you wash and then you get into the bath. So you're never going into the bath to clean yourself. Mm-hmm. You're just going into the bath to relax and get the sort of heat. In the middle, I just had inordinate amounts of time to think and listen to the trees and look at the light and walk the earth and feel, you know, sort of connected to the earth and having just time to just digest, not having to rush, no, there was no connectivity, no distractions. Our luggage was taken from town to town by a service, so we walked with almost mm. nothing on our back, you know, just a little bit of food and water. And we walked, you know, different paces, so there were some of the days I was almost all the day on my own. Oh, interesting. But I knew that they were there. I was walking slow. Not because I couldn't walk fast, because I just didn't want to walk fast. And I made a very concerted effort to, you know, kind of spend the time thinking about my mother, thinking about what she meant to me and how she impacted my life and how I am definitely her continuation and absorbing, absorbing the change. And I didn't listen to music until the last two days. I listened only to the trees and this wind. And it sounds very kind of, you know, maybe a little even cheesy, but but it wasn't, you know, it was. (laughs) No, not at all. It's so beautiful and so real and so, I mean, and so surreal too. So disconnected from everything, just floating in its own space and time. And and it's a beautiful road, Kumano Kodo. So when we were at the Yamabushi's guy's place, we asked him, what does Kumano Kodo mean? And he said, well, it means one thing, but if you translate literally, it would mean one thing, but it actually means deep, dark, ancient road. <laughs> Sounds like a good description from the, from the photos you see. And the crazy part was the last day we left from his place and we walked, you know, to the last sort of huge, amazing temple that's always shown in these pictures of Kumarankodo. It's called Nachi Taisha, Kumano Nachi Taisha. And it's beautiful. There's a pagoda and a, and a waterfall. And, you know, we arrived there pretty much as night was falling. It was a long nine-hour day. 
We walked like 20 plus kilometers. Oof. We just asked him, what does it actually mean? And he said, well, in our culture, this is what it means. And then, of course, just before the trail was ending, you know, and just as it was, as we were, about, we knew we only had like maybe another half an hour of walking. We, the, the trail kind of opened up into these beautiful fields with incredible trees with flowers on them and <laughs> only in Japan. And, and then <laughs> in the last moment, right as you were walking down the trail through this open field, where you walk through like this doorway of vegetation into like the deepest, darkest <laughs> you know, piece of forest you've ever seen in your life, total darkness. And it was just like he said, you know, the dark, deep, ancient road. And we were, we were blown away. Like you walked into this, you know, it was the sun was setting, so it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of bright light outside, but it was even more, you know, astonishing in a way because we were out there in the kind of the, the sort of the twilight and yet there was a lot of light, but it wasn't strong. And then, you know, we started walking, we were walking because we wanted to get to the end at that point because we was, I mean, the sun was setting. And then we suddenly kind of walked into this like archway of vegetation and you walk in and just like the depth of the darkness of the forest right before the end you know like they say it's always darkest before dawn mm. and it was literally you walked into this dark 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 forest and then you walked out the other side and you were looking at this beautiful waterfall with this beautiful red pagoda sitting there with this huge temple i mean the last day and a half i actually started listening to music which was also an incredible experience because i was already walking for almost you know three and a half days without listening to anything like except for nature and then i started listening to music and it was it was just you know it was a stream of association kind of stream of consciousness choice of music but i listened to whole albums through and it was, and then I listened to one chanting of like the monks and nuns of Plum Village where Thich Nhat Hanh's sort of monastery is. Mm. The first album my dad bought us when we were kids at some point was Peter, Paul and Mary's album, which was their first album. It was recorded many years before that, but he loved them. And, and it was something that was very sort of foundational in my experience of childhood. So Peter, Paul and Mary album. And I listened to it through. And then I listened to about a 25, 30 minute, something like that, maybe more 40 minute chanting from the Plum Village monks and nuns, where they chant sort of praise to Avalokiteshvara, who's basically the bodhisattva of compassion. And that's kind of what I listened to on, on the fourth day of walking. And on the fifth day of walking, I listened to that chant again. And then I listened to George Harrison's album, All Things Must Pass. After that, I listened to Viking Kur Olafsson. He's a contemporary, current, living, young Icelandic pianist who's putting together these beautiful concept albums of classical music. And that's an album called Reflections. Then I listened to the Rolling Stones, <laughs> Sticky Fingers, which is my favorite Rolling Stones album. And lastly, as I was walking through that archway of darkness before the end of the, I listened to Gabriel Fauré's Requiem, which is a piece that my mother 
introduced me to. And uh, so it was very appropriate Requiem and my mother and this place. And it's a very, it's a recording that she found and I love by uh, Robert Shaw and the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and Chorus and Choir. And that was it. So, you know, those were like six albums and, and a chanting. Nice variety. Yeah, huge variety. <laughs> huge variety. Very, very, very powerful. Very powerful. Yeah, totally. And then we ended up on this seaport town called Nachikatsura. It's the largest seaport for tuna fishing in Japan. So Japan, obviously, is a tuna crazy country. And this is the largest market in Japan for tuna. So we went in the morning and watched the tuna auction. It's pretty crazy to see like a thousand tuna wow. lying on their side, dead. But they treated with respect, let's put it that way. And that's really it. But, you know, I can tell you very, very sincerely that those seven days really were, you know, incredibly peaceful and, and also allowed me space which is really all I was looking for. I needed some space. And, and I felt like I owed it to the company, to myself, of course, to myself, to my mom, who were, by mm -hmm. the way, we're, we're going to dedicate this episode to my mom. But um, Yeah, that's great. That's great. I would say, you know, I felt like I, I couldn't just turn around, like I said, and act as if nothing happened and just continue as, as always. But then it drags with you. You know, you need to really address address the pain, address the sense of loss, address the, the sadness, you know, and, and then you can go on. You have to, though, give it its due. And I really felt that way, and that's why I did it. And I knew that it was going to be good for me, good for everyone around me, <laughs> good for the company, that I would come back and I could come back feeling like, I respected this, you know, and I didn't, I didn't just brush over it, you know, that, that would have mm -hmm. felt not good to me. And I don't think it would have been good for us as a company or anything like that. And, you know, and as a leader, I, I think about those things. I think like, how can I, you know, even though this is, you know, huge events happening in my life, how can I make it, you know, useful at the end of the day? Or how do I not make it, you know, <laughs> negative? Let's put it that way. How do I avoid you know, it becoming, you know, a source of negativity or destruction, destruction or plain kind of depression. And I don't think that unless you actually, uh, that's my feeling, is you devote the time to it, you can come back strong, stronger maybe, and really focus. Otherwise, you kind of stay defocused, I think. And not that it's, you know, that's over, you know, it's like I'm in this year of I expect this to go on for the rest of my life, I'm, you know, actually. And, you know, but I think that also this, you know, in our tradition, in Jewish tradition, the first year you're full-fledged mourner for a year. You know, yeah. once the year is over, you know, and a, you know, a new year begins, it's a different story. Like, that's how things go in those kind of cyclicals of years. But it was good. And, you know, Japan, like I said, is... It's worth dedicating a whole episode to Japan because I really think there's a lot to learn and a lot to respect and a lot to admire. And there's so many reasons why I think it's like they figured it out. <laughs> now, I am not <laughs> Japanese. I don't know what it's like to work there. I think there's a lot of stress in the workplace. But because of the discipline, because of the attention to, you know, to detail and the search for, you know, perfection. But I like that, <laughs> you know, I think that, you know me, I'm, I'm, it's very intense. Mm -hmm. There's an intensity to going after something and making it happen. 
Thanks for sharing that experience. I think it's a really, really cool episode. I know but when we first started talking about it, I knew that we had to dedicate an entire episode to it. Yeah, well, thanks for asking me and going there. It's important. It's important that, that we face life bravely and, and directly and not try and sweep things under the carpet. <laughs> it doesn't ever work. Yep. And at the same time, you know, it's, it's good to be back. Great to have you back. Thank you. Are there any last things that you want to share with the audience? The beauty of the world is is that there are still differences that the core essence of, you know, humanity is the same everywhere. But in different cultures there's a highlight on different a spotlight on different things and I think that that's that's the beauty of like, you know, experiencing the world in its fullness because you get a chance to experience life in its fullness different peoples different cultures different religions different geographies and countries and histories bring about different kinds of customs and rituals and and attention and different kinds of dynamics and communication so but it's it's just interesting to see all that and you can expose yourself to stuff that you maybe you didn't grow up you know, with, but doesn't mean that it's not useful, <laughs> you know, that you can't learn and adopt, you know, the ways of other people. It's not, it's not anathema to me to say, okay, well, I wasn't born a Buddhist or Japanese, you know, but I really, really am drawn to their, to the way that they think and the culture and the sensibility of it. And I want it to be, you know, a bigger part of my life because you only live once, right? And so you might as well live it the best way you can. And that's what it means to me. The continuous sort of exploration of the world is all about experiencing life to its fullest. Great. Yeah, totally agree. See you in Japan. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. It sounds like you might not be in Cleveland for too much longer. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I don't think I could live there, actually. I, I think that I, it's a place I'm going to go to disconnect and to enjoy it as a visitor. I don't think it's a society mm. that, you know, I mean, you have to have a real reason to live there. Either, you know, you have a job that sends you there, like I'm talking about if you're not Japanese. You yeah, have a job that sends you there or you get married with a Japanese person. And otherwise, I can't see how that works. It's such a different kind of Definitely in the workplace, you know, dynamic, I couldn't work there. I don't think I could. I mean, I talk to people in hotels who are not, not Japanese and I ask them, how is it to work here? And they would say, oh, it's tough. Oh, it's tough. I don't think I'm going to be living there, but I'm sure as hell going to go there. <laughs> enjoy it and enjoy it because there's a lot of it. Yep. Yep. Okay. Adios. Have a nice evening. Or as they say in Japan, Kongawa. Kongawa. Good evening. Yeah. Kongawa. So just a quick note for the audience, make sure to check out all the links within the descriptions of this podcast because we'll have we'll put some links to some cool photos and elaborate on Yuval's trip. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks very much for listening to A Jolt of Uvelocity, my podcast that will be published every month on the last Wednesday of every month on all the platforms and looking forward to seeing you again as we explore all the different 
things that Jay has in store for us. Thanks to Jay Sailing, and see you soon. For more information, visit us at uvelocity.com, where you can find transcripts of these podcasts and other articles and thoughts that you might find useful. uvelocity.com. That's Y-U-V-A-L-O-C-I-T-Y dot com.